Hello and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more Shelf Stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome back to Shelf Stories, the channel that tells tales from games, books, and life. I'm your host, Jason. Thank you so much for stopping by to The Case Files. This is the series of episodes where I take a game's theme and I pass it through a cultural critical lens. Assessing for Case. That is my acronym for Cultural Appropriation, Stereotyping, and Erasure so that I can provide a good sense of what the cultural story of the game is. I am taking a look at Lost Ruins of Arnak today. Uh, this is from Czech Games Edition, who was kind enough to provide a review copy of this game for the specific purpose of a cultural review. So thank you very much to them. It is the one to four player worker placement deck building sensation. Very popular game in which you're playing explorers, searching around an unknown land, discovering valuable artifacts, dodging monsters and all sorts of exciting things like that. Let's take a look at what story this game is telling and I'll tell you what I think. The time period for Lost Ones of Arnak is a mid-20th century or later. Judging by the available modes of transportation, planes and buggies and whatnot, the setting is, quote, somewhere in the uncharted waters of the Pacific Ocean, according to the search for Professor Cotillo solo mode on the CGE website. So what are we doing? Once again, the CGE website and also on the back of the box. On an uninhabited island in uncharted seas. <laughs> uninhabited island? Ooh, boy. In terms of the exploration around the world, this description matches the doctrine of Terra Nullius, or Nobody's Land. This is a view that sees non-European land as functionally empty of civilized life, or any life, leaving it ripe for claiming, settling, and exploiting. In real life history, the term appears in a papal bull from Pope Urban II in 1095 at the beginning of the Crusades. It gave the Crusaders the right to claim non-Christian lands on their way to Jerusalem. The doctrine was extended to include Africa, the Americas, and elsewhere by later popes. The papal bull Romanus Pontifex in 1455 gave the Portuguese king of the time the right to, quote, invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, and all other enemies of Christ wheresoever placed, the right to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, and to convert their possessions to his use and profit. So that's Terra Nullius, conceptually and literally erasing people to get their stuff. Not great. Contrary to that, pretty much anywhere in the world where there are signs of ancient humans, there are modern humans who descended from them and who claim their land and heritage. There's largely no such thing as nobody's land, especially when it comes to a major site of human activity. Arnak takes place in the South Pacific. So analogous archaeological location would be, for example, Nan Madal in Micronesia, or the Moai, the large statues on Rapa Nui, also known as the Easter Islands. Places like these have their own stories of rise and fall, which I encourage everyone to learn about. However, the important point is that indigenous residents always knew these places were there and often lived there, so foreigners had to deal with them. We would do well in our fiction to not simply erase those interactions. Why does all this matter in a game about archaeology? Because archaeologists are much more closely tied to explorers, armies, smugglers, and thieves than our culture likes to admit. 
It is no accident that our first overseas archaeological dig in world history was done by the French Emperor Napoleon during a military campaign in Egypt and Syria beginning in 1798. He brought hundreds of scientists to Egypt to learn about its past history, who eventually uncovered the famed Rosetta Stone. At one point, possession of the stone transferred from the French to the British. It has been a continuous display in the British Museum ever since, despite repatriation claims from Egypt. Repatriation? That's a nice word for give me back my stuff. As you can see from the headlines, many, many countries around the world, from Greece, different African nations, Peru, and many others, want their stuff back from the West. The process of repatriation has been slow and fraught, with a lot of resistance from the Western scientific and museum communities, to say the least. I'm not discounting the great contributions of human knowledge made by Western scientists. I'm simply pointing out that the knowledge stands on the shoulders of possessiveness and a lack of cultural partnership. So in part one, I discussed the overall lore of Lost Ruins of Arnak. Here, I like to talk about some of the elements that emerge from the board play in terms of the game's story. So uh, I spent some time talking about the acquisition of artifacts, and that's a huge part of what's going on here. So you have your researcher tokens, and they're progressing up this research track here. And eventually you end at the door of the bird temple, and you will be getting some kind of artifact. So as I said in that first part, usually the artifact either belongs to somebody or somebody's aware of it. So uh, every time I reach my little character over here, I get the vague feeling that I'm kind of taking something from somebody. Let me go ahead and show you that bird temple. And there's a lot of different temples that are clearly man-made. If you don't believe that a temple is man-made, well, look at what's coming out of the artifact deck, the things that are supposedly in and around this temple. We got sundial. What does a big monster need to know the time off the sun for? Uh, we got Pathfinder sandals. As a matter of fact, if I look at this entire deck, we got idols and hammers and uh, different uh, candle holder, uh, ceremonial knife. These are the things that the humans used to communicate with the guardians or their spirits. Clearly human made. In addition, uh, if you notice, I'm also showing the regular items. These have a material cost. Uh, these things cost gold. So I got brush and uh, compass and all that kind of thing. Uh, the Western stuff is stuff that I have to pay material money for. Here, for the artifacts, you pay in what the game calls compasses, which in the game currency is an actual resource, but it's supposed to signify discovery, finding stuff. So I buy the uh, implements that are made uh, in the Western context, but I find the artifacts around in the land and I don't have any other cost besides just walking around and finding it. That is not the way that worked out in real life. That strains credulity. I'm now showing some of the advanced worker placement spaces on the board. These are discovered as you send your explorers out throughout the game. And when you first get there, you will encounter a guardian. I'm now showing uh, bats and owls and uh, all sorts of monstrous and fantastical creatures. Uh, ostensibly, uh, in the fiction of the game, these replace the natives that one would encounter in real life. So 
Uh, this is a very difficult practice, or could be. In other games, it is. Uh, notably, a game like Australia, where that game reiterates direct colonization, but instead of uh, killing native peoples, the fiction of, of that game replaced the natives with monsters, uh, what I call monster washing, to make it okay. <laughs> Here, though, uh, the lore is a little bit different. The book says... We fought the monstrous creatures hand-to-hand, knife-to-claw. The beast went down, but none could strike the death blow. We stood in awe. The beast bowed its head, acknowledging us. And we realized that this was no monster. No, this creature was one of Arnak's legendary guardians. And so in the uh, course of the game, you see that there are these symbols. And uh, they aren't necessarily symbols to defeat the monster. It's like an exchange. So that totally fits with a motif of having natives there instead of monsters. Or if you want to keep the fantastical motif, you can have the natives with the monsters. You can give articles to the natives so that they do some sort of uh, ritual and they satisfy the monster and get you what you want. There's so many ways that this could have been done without erasing the native peoples that could be there in a more realistic rendering of this game. The last thing I'll talk about in terms of the erasure and the board play uh, is in the resource system. So we have our gems and our compasses as main uh, currency for exchange, but we also have tablets, arrowheads, and gems. Never in the history of human archaeology have they ever found such strong evidence of human activity like tablets and arrowheads without finding human remains. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, they've even erased our bones which is a huge deal because there are many indigenous folks who that's the most important part for them. Some of them are even saying, keep the stuff. I would like the bones of our ancestors so that we could treat them respectfully. Now, I'm not saying that the bones should be part of the economy of the game. It'd be very macabre and not very cool to trade a femur or a skull for a gem or an arrowhead. That'd be silly. However, some kind of nod towards, uh, you know, having human remains or just take the whole thing out and don't have anything human, have just, you know, raw natural resources going halfway like this, showing the results of human activity, but erasing the humans themselves. It strains credulity as a story and it touches that erasure button that is very difficult for a culturally minded person. So the third and final aspect I'd like to talk about is the player side, the avatars, the representations, the most intimate part of the board game to the player, connecting me and you and our personal experience and immersing us in the game. What do we see, how we are presented in that personal player board space? I am showing the boards from the Expedition Leaders expansion, an excellent mechanical expansion, a no-brainer if you like Arnak has individual player boards and they're represented by different faces and they're diverse. Uh, so you have your white guy, you uh, have to have a white guy, that's mandatory. You also have a uh, Asian woman, a black man, a darker skinned man who's uh, kind of has some mystical vibes over there. So, you know, in terms of the, um, the facial diversity that's there, 
the story is consistent. They're all archaeologists. And so what I would have liked to have seen uh, to make it a little bit more of a local story is a Polynesian person. It's a Polynesian land, it's a Polynesian expeditions, and uh, very often they join expeditions to understand their own stories. I like to say in the, this space, we don't just want our faces, we want our stories. And this is the last part I'll show, and this one is just, <laughs> I'm not really sure uh, how to explain this, but uh, what I'm showing now are the uh, tiles for researchers. Along the way, on the research track, you can recruit researchers, and they're, uh, they give you one-time bonuses, you tap them every single round, and there's a couple of uh, diverse faces, but for the most part, you're getting a lot of Europeans uh, in this pile. So... Uh, the reason this really gets me is because it is a total fiction that researchers go to a foreign land and they just figure it out on their own. They almost always have local guides that they pay in order uh, to be able to you know, explore and do what they do. So this would have been a wonderful opportunity if this is, again, a South Pacific story to hire local guides. Uh, some of the ones I'm showing right now have an exchange. You pay a coin, you get an arrowhead. You pay a foot, you get an arrowhead or whatever it is. That would have been a perfect uh, way to say, okay, I'm hiring a local guy. They're benefiting because I'm giving them money and they're giving me something and you know we're proceeding on the, um, the expedition together. So the absence of locality, local flavor, just ugh. the guides in particular just drive me nuts. I'm not really sure <laughs> why I'm keying on that one. So that was Lost Ruins of Arnak, the cultural story. And I know I've been doing this a while. <laughs> Some of the comments I'm likely to get. Jason, you're putting it all in there. Have some fun. Uh, this is a fictional story. It is not an historical tome. It doesn't have to talk about European colonization or repatriation of artifacts. You're putting it all in there. This is a romp. Uh, this is Indiana Jones-esque. Jason, why do you hate fun so much? And I have to check myself uh, on that one, to be honest with you, because, you know, I'm a historically minded person. And, you know, when something does evoke history uh, in any way, I would love for, you know, the game to be as historical as possible. So I am checking myself and I, you know, I have to say that I want Lost Ruins of Arnak to be a fictional romp. I want it to be fun. I want it to be a game for the masses that everybody enjoys. My issue is the way the fiction was constructed. My issue is what the fiction borrows from real life and what it leaves out, and how it made those choices. And that falls into three different buckets. Uh, the first is, this is a Eurocentric fi uh, fiction, a Western uh, way of constructing a fiction. So then the middle is resonant with you know our experience. People who are buying the games, uh, designed so that we're in, you know, uh, it's like we're on this uh, you know adventure. So, you know, the middle is full of diverse characters, you know, skin-deep diversity, which is, you know, fine. I'm not going to uh, complain about that. It's a Western paradigm, though, because it's, you know, researchers, academics, and archaeologists and stuff. Those are Western uh, paradigms. They've also brought in the world. You know, they brought in real place names. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the, the Pacific and, uh, you know, the way that some of the, you know, the buggies and the, the aeroplanes, everything comes, there's so much that comes from the real world in the middle and then the further you get out, the more fantastical it gets. Uh, now, on that outer level, you have monsters and you have, you know, these crazy artifacts that are, you know, unknown and all this kind of stuff. So then, you know, in this kind of class of civilizations uh, structure, 
you have a middle that is resonant and, you know, invites people in. And then you have this other where it just so happens that native peoples would be. And in this case, the Polynesian uh, peoples. So they don't get to be in here or their story does not get to be in here unless they are willing to be a, a bat or, a, you know, a big bird or something like that. That's that's that. That's number one. So that's not necessarily even a problem uh, because every culture tells its own, you know, uh, culturally centered stories. Everyone, every culture wants to center itself. That, that, that in and of itself, if that was the only bucket, that'll be fine. So uh, more stories, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Bucket number two is very, very difficult. It's the idea of terra nullius and that fiction that pervades this game is the same exact fiction that pervaded a lot of history post, um, you know, quote unquote discovery, even calling it discovery is almost buying into this idea of terra nullius, which has caused a lot of real world material harm. It did it back in the day. And it's also doing so today. There are people who, you know, even if it, they don't really, you know, as described to like nobody's land, you know, there's ideas that are descended from it. Like, you know, there's certain people that have uh, a more uh, resonant claim to artifacts, to resources, to all this stuff because they're more civilized or they, they, they can do more with it, will protect it more. You'll hear these arguments for why museums and, you know, scientists don't give back, you know, whatever uh, artifact they're hoarding and keeping, you know, uh, we can we can take care of it better. It's like that kind of cultural hierarchy is denying a lot of people real world resources and denying them their culture right this minute. And it is born of this fruit, this seed, this terra seed that is right in the first line of the description of this game. What I like to say about, you know, games like this is that they don't actually cause oppression. This game doesn't mean it uh, doesn't mean any harm. The way in which it is questionable is that when a game reproduces something, uh, an impression that happens in real life, it does so unthinkingly. And when I, when I, encounter the same oppression in a game as in the real world, that's a difficult line for me, especially in an uncritical way as this game does. And here's number three, and this is a game design specific thing. And this is kind of building on the way that games would often do uh, um, exploration paradigms. So then, you know, we've had a bunch, you know, uh, we loved, you know, Robinson Crusoe, remember Robinson Crusoe up there somewhere. Uh, Quest for El Dorado, and you know we've had a lot of these exploration uh, style games where you know archaeologists delve into the the unknown. And the f old way of doing it was to put native peoples in there, but just kind of you know throw them in there, uh, or make them enemies, or like they'd be there, but they'd be there in a way that we wouldn't want them to be there at all, not looking great. Uh, or but one of my favorites uh, is in the Quest for El Dorado. You have your largely white cast of helpers and professions and everything, and then you have the native whose job was native. That's not what you want. So I almost feel like Lost Ruins um, did the thing of like, okay, no politics, not gonna do, and not gonna present any native thing whatsoever. We're not even gonna try. We're just gonna, you know, play, uh, erase everything and make a nice clean story that everybody can enjoy. That approach is like, okay, we're going to avoid the stepping in the, the appropriation pile of poo, we're going to avoid stepping in the stereotyping pile of poo, but then you stepped in the erasure pile of poo. I don't 
love that way of navigating these political choices by just kind of choosing to remove potentially problematic pieces because you leave in the other stuff that brings my brain to the things that should be there. If you're going to call something Pacific, then I expect Pacific Islanders to be in there. Don't take our things if you're not willing to take our beings and our stories too. So where does that leave me in my assessment of this game? Um, I love this game as a game, as a mechanical experience. There's a, a little space in my shelf. You may have seen that on my previous videos. And moving forward, Lars Arnold will be sitting right there. I, this is a 9.5 uh, game for me. Um, one of the best games I've played in the last a couple of years. It's great. And as a cultural story, you know, there's levels to this stuff. And so uh, as part of the case series, I'm going to establish kind of a spectrum. So like, you know, green is you know, good and yellow is uh, whatever. And then you have orange and red, which are worse. Here it's yellow. It tickles some things. It's not devastating. I just think that there were some on-ramps that could have been chosen to make this a little bit more of a resonant story and keeping the fun. I, I recommended some, you know, like ways to highlight the role of native peoples that could have been uh, introduced in this game. You know, especially the guides. Come on, can we get some guides, please? <laughs> that, that totally lines up with the story of how exploration happened. Uh, you know, at least start from there and then we can uh, talk. So um, this is also my invitation to other creators, you know, who are want to tell these stories. Uh, you know, games used to do it one way. Uh, Lars Ruins is trying to, you know, remix it and do it another way. Uh, both, uh, you know, presenting their difficulties. The way forward is more stories. The way forward is bringing in more real-world resonance and, you know, creating your fiction off of a deeper understanding of what really happened. That's the way forward, at least for me. And uh, to the creators of CGE, um, you know, if you want to make Lost Worlds of Arnak 2, uh, the repatriation of Arnak artifacts or something like that, then I would be perfectly happy to help out in that project too. So Lost Ruins, uh, yeah, it's a keeper for me for so many other reasons, uh, but I hope that I've given something constructive uh, and something to think about uh, and discuss in the comments below. If you can change your mind, you can change the world, people. So until next time, later, everybody. Hello, and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more Shelf Stories.